Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. This week, we're talking first up with Drew Morgan over on the Tallapoosa River. Drew, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Good. Y'all ain't froze to death up there yet? Uh, not yet. It looks like next week we might get froze, so <laughs> we might be yeah. ice fishing next week. I've, I've been looking at that now. I'll, I'll say this. the uh, From the one time I've been on it, the uh, Tallapoosa flows quick enough. I think y'all will be the last freeze up there on them shoals. So. Yeah, I think we'll be all right. Okay. You know, so. I, now, I don't know if the angler, I don't know if the fisherman will be all right. You know, I've, I've fished in 28 degrees before, but I ain't ever fished in 15 degrees. So that might be a little too cold for a boy from Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to say, I do not know many people that would fish when it was 15 degrees out. We got some crappie fishermen down here who they they do the whole thing where they bundle up in their bibs. But uh, 15, I, I got some guys up in Minnesota that like got ice shanties and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're they're built for it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because we get enough of them down here on the beach. We get enough transplants. I, I had a friend who was from uh, South Dakota and he he would tell you like no i ain't built for it that's why i'm back down here (laughs) yeah well well tell me a little bit what's uh what's going on up there on the talapusa what's what's the uh what's the word you know it's been good uh how we've we've got a little bit of rain here the past i won't say a little bit we've got some rain the past week week and a half and the levels have been a little bit higher but really before that we had been in a good period of of good water floatable fishable water and um, a lot of nice fish being caught. And the water will go back. As soon as the water returns back to normal, the great thing about river fishing and Talpus River especially is um, those those fish are feeding and um, relatively easy to find them if you know what you're looking for. So fishing's been good for, for wintertime fishing. You know, if, if you don't mind being on the water when it's cold and fighting a little bit of wind and you know, I, I I say if you if you like fishing the the river in the winter, you're you're pretty serious because it's it's not the uh, it's not the summertime sit back and relax kind of fishing. It's it's hardcore fishing. But the nice thing is we get less numbers this time of year. You're not going to catch as many fish, but you're going to get way more size on the fish that you catch. And we've we've been seeing that so far this year. So it's been good. So what does it look like? I've got very limited experience on the Tallapoosa up there. I, I imagine that you're not focusing so much on the shoals anymore. Like, are you getting into the upper limits of, of Lake Martin there? Or are you just focusing on the section of the river where you've got deeper channel? Or are you working like, I know there were some deeper like bluff banks up there, mm-hmm. uh, undercut banks and stuff like that. What what type of structure are you looking for, for those big fish to hold up in, or, or I guess yeah, structure, but what type of water are you looking for? Yeah. It, we're, so we're still, I would say we're still relatively around the shoals. We don't catch a whole lot of fish 
in riffles or runs necessarily. But um, if you got a deep pool, what some people call a tail out at the end of a big run um, where it slows down and you may have a big eddy and it kind of swirls, looking for that, looking for, I have found on my personal experience, if you can find a deep pool or a deeper slow pool adjacent to a run or in a tail out, that's also got a sandy bottom where sand has been deposited, but it's also been kind of washed out. If you see that sandy bottom, but then it gets real deep, caught a lot of nice fish in those situations. So we're still in the river. We're, we're, you know, I say we're, we're fishing adjacent to current. You're not necessarily fishing current as much as you're fishing the big, deep pools next to the current that will have a back eddy. Uh, so those fish are, you know, I mean, they're just feeding, they're, they're needing to eat, they're, um, getting fat for, I think they're already getting fat for the spawn. They know it's coming. Um, I think the big females are trying to get as big as they can. And, um, you know, they're, they're looking for anything that washes up in that eddy. I think that's those sandy bottoms hold a lot of crayfish and other critters and stuff this, this time of year. And so that's, that's really, you know, I mean, we're, they're, they're still there. They're still in the river and, uh, they're, they're still eating. It's just a matter of, uh, kind of switching tactics a little bit, looking for them in a different place. So a lot of people think that bass stop eating in the winter, but you know, if, if you're willing to get out there and fish for them and put in the work, they're, they're still eating. Um, they don't go to sleep. Sure. So once you find kind of those, those current adjacent pools, are you, you mentioned there being a lot of crayfish down there. Are you like using sink tip lines and fishing crayfish imitations real slow or what do you, how are you working those pools? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, you, you got to be really patient. It's probably equivalent to the fishing a shaky head or finesse worm on a lake. You know, you're fishing slow. You're letting it deep. I, I do like using a sink tip line. I, I would say equipment is really important this time of year, probably more important than the summer. You're going to want uh, a rod that can cast a heavier line and generally a heavier fly. You're going to want a, a good sink tip line and for your for your listeners, the advantage of a sink tip is that um, you've got obviously the the tip of the end of the fly line sinks, but you still got a long you know well the rest of the line is floating, so you can still control the line on top of the water and mend it as you need, so you can keep the the fly where you want it to be. Um, whereas if the whole line sank, you can't pick the line up out. Of, it's harder to pick the line up out of the water to mend and keep it there. So sink tip, I like a sink tip. And I, most of the guys I fish with use a sink tip. We're using a six or seven weight rod. Really, the you know a six weight rod can handle a a, a, a good you know big fish. But um, if you think you may be casting bigger flies, then I like a seven. So sometimes my rod choice is more about the size of the fly I'm, I'm casting, not necessarily about the size of the fish. And also wind. If it's a windy day, you're probably going to want to cast a seven or maybe even an eight an, an eight weight rod just to help cut through that wind. But in in terms of gear, I would say saltwater tactics apply. Saltwater tactics and gear, not necessarily the fly line, but casting, um, thinking about wind, using heavier rods to cut through the wind, um, all that stuff kind of applies more to to river bass fishing in the winter. But um I like a sink tip. As far as flies go, so you asked about that. You know, I'll be honest with you. Um, if, if you present it right, if, if you find where a fish is holding and eating, they're not too picky. Um, I will say 
that from what we've seen, articulation is really important in a streamer. And um, a streamer is any fly that sings. So, you know, any bait fish imitation or crayfish imitation or anything that's going to sink is a streamer. So articulation is really important for whatever reason. I mean, well, not for whatever reason. I mean, it gives it more movement. The fly can move without you even stripping in the line. Any any fly that has any other kind of movement, like a game changer fly, is uh, articulated and it's got a lot of movement. It looks like it's swimming. Any fly that has a kind of a big head and pushes water, ducks and dives and jukes, you know, that always works. Kind of like, you know, if you're fishing a, a jerk bait in the lake or crankbait in the lake, you know, it's got a kind of a erratic movement. We're really kind of mimicking that same thing, but just on a fly rod. So last time out, I mean, we were catching them on black. Black seemed to work. There was a little bit more stain in the water, so darker colors worked that day. But I know a guy that was out there recently and caught some good ones on white. So be ready just to have a couple of different colors. If one color doesn't seem to be working, switch switch colors before you switch flies, you know. And uh, if, if you don't get a bite on it after – 10 minutes or so you could probably switch because when I will say once this time of year, once you find a color that they like and, and you you're casting where you think fish are or should be, there's a good chance you'll, you'll, you'll catch a good fish this time of year. Hell, talk to me a little bit. I think the last time that we talked uh, was right before uh, me and a buddy made a trip down the Tallapoosa. We did the old, um, Oh, what's the military park up there? What's the name for it? Horseshoe bend. I think we did horseshoe bend. The Jaybird, yeah, we did that float. And uh I gotta say I've spent a lot of miles on a canoe. I've spent a lot of miles on rivers, but they've mostly been, you know, kind of your typical, you know, muddy water southern rivers with not much current and, you know, big, wide, deep rivers. And uh I swear I put about twenty years worth of wear on the bottom of that old fiberglass <laughs> canoe going down them shoals and, and I was yeah. sitting there, uh I did I right. think I think my buddy got a little bit worried when he when he seen some of the spots that we went through, but we never did tip. <laughs> we had a had a good trip, never had to get yeah. out and drag. So uh but but I'm curious, like that's a uh a kind of a unique river, uh that little stretch right there with those shoals. I mean, I guess there's stuff like that on the Cahaba and, and some of the other rivers further up north, but it was a novel experience to me and I know you run that stretch pretty often. Oh yes. Yeah. What's your best tips for people who are getting out there? Because I know in the summertime, you know, it's a little aggravating if uh, yeah, if you have a mistake. But you know, when that when that water temperature starts to drip, you really don't feel like having to get out and shove your boat off of a rock, and you definitely don't feel like flipping. So, what's what's your best tips for uh, <laughs> what's your best tips yeah, for making man. that run? You're exactly right. Definitely want to kind of know where you're going and what you want to do. Now, the good thing about this time of year is that water levels are going to be higher, which don't let that scare you off because water levels are always higher in the winter. Fish are used to that. Now, if if the summertime had a wintertime water level, then that would throw the fish off because the fish are used to summertime levels. But the fish are, if it's winter, they're used to wintertime levels. So good thing about that is that generally this time of year, the, the river's a little more swollen, water levels a little higher. That, that makes it way easier to float. A lot of times the water, you know, will be two to three foot higher and it just goes over the rocks and rocks that you have to worry about in the summer. You don't even see this time of year. The main worry there for me when we, we run rafts and or drift boat style rafts is, is just snagging an anchor on some of those rocks you don't see. But, but if you're in a canoe, I mean, I will say safety is number one. You know, if you wear waders, make sure you have a belt on. 
you don't want to fall out and, and have your waders fill up with water in a river. That's really bad news. I knew a guy that he was experienced and he got confident, went out there with waders, didn't have a belt on. He fell out and it filled up quick and it, it could have been bad. But other than that, I mean, you mentioned horseshoe bend to Jaybird. I always tell people once you pass the power line, stay left. Um, that generally is the better route through. But but I'll say this, this time of year, like I said, the, the water's going to be higher and you, you could probably go just about anywhere and not have to worry about getting in such low water that you can't float over it. Because that is, you're right, that is, if you don't know where you're going that time of year, you'll end up dragging, having to drag a canoe two miles, two and a half miles, which is brutal. So <laughs> I think we made it through pretty well. We We had some water. But uh, it was close. Like we we kind of had to commit to the trip and you know book a date, place <laughs> to stay, and everything. So you you know, you know, doing that, you run the risk of getting up there. And uh, when we went, it was right there at the cusp. I, and I forget what it is. I don't I don't go up there enough to know. But I remember looking at it and telling my buddy, like if it drops any more overnight, you know, when we wake up tomorrow, we're just gonna have to make the decision. And it was uh, it was low. We made the run. We had a good time. Got to see the shoals. Uh, caught a few fish and had a had a real good time. Uh, we'll probably be back next year to to make that run again. And uh, yeah, I, I'd like to have you know an extra few inches of water when we go. Yeah, I'll say this, and I, I'm not a some of my the the whitewater folks laugh at me because I I like to think and I like to use the foot or feet unit instead of CFS. I can envision feet better than yeah cfs that's but, that's um, how we are down here it's not so much yeah. the flow it's it's the you know what what level is the water over at the barry hydrograph or what level is it at the right. dam or whatever when you get into the cfs like like on the cahaba and i think y'all and when you know they talk about the cfs and i'm like yeah I, I get it i know it's a number i can check and see if the number is high or low but i can't visualize that the same way i can visualize feet yeah. So I, I always say if it's lower than three foot, it's, you're going to be dragging. And, you know, that generally is only in maybe sometimes in August and then some, and then October, it can get pretty low in the drier months. But, but this time of year, you really don't have to worry about that. You just need to make sure you're wearing life jacket. You're wearing, if you're, if you're wearing waders, wear a belt and, uh, you know, don't, don't make any risks you don't have to take, you know, don't, get out of the boat if you don't have to just kind of think through because when that water's moving and it's cold and um in the summertime if you follow the boat on that river a lot of places if you follow the boat you just stand up you know <laughs> right. right yeah it's not a big deal but but yeah I'm, that's definitely important to think about for this time of year being safe well we'll tell everybody i know that's a uh we were sitting there doing it and we're thinking, man, it would be nice if we were going with somebody who knew, you know, do you hug left or do you hug right or do you go straight? Like, does it get better? Does it get worse in the next quarter mile? Yep. Uh, if if people want to look at booking a trip with you here once it starts warming up, where's a good place to reach out to you at? Yeah, no, um, we would love that. We, you know, that's obviously what we do. And I will say this, I've, I've done deep, I've done what I call DIY trips myself where I've gone off for the first time and tried to fish something. And I've also gone off and gotten guides. And I'll say this, that we, there are places on the Tapoose that look super fishy and you could spend all day because to, to, and to me still, it looks like there should be fish there, but I can tell you there are places where I can count on one hand places where that look super fishy. I can count on one hand, the number of fish I've caught there. And then places that don't 
super fishy and always catch fish there. So wherever you go, getting a guide is, you know, saving up, getting a guide is always worth the money. Um, and we would love to have you out with us. Um, you can go to eastalabamaflyfishing.com and uh, there'll be a link. You, there's information about our trips. There's a link that says book a trip and uh, you can go through that. And it's, it's set up just to make your experience really easy to book a trip. Um, there's a contact form if you want to email us and uh, get more information and talk about it. You can do that too. We have a lot of great guides uh, that are uh, that really know the river well and, and, and know what they're doing. I, um, I started the company, but uh, I brought on a, a lot of great guides that honestly are even better. Well, not that I'm a great angler. I just like to learn. But um, just really great men that love the river and love fishing and, and love guiding and helping people catch fish. So it is, an, it is a unique experience in the South. Um, it's unlike any river. I would say it's very close to the Flint River um, as far as how it looks and how it fishes, but Flint River in Georgia, I should say. But it's a unique river. It's it's clear water and beautiful, and the fish are eager, and it's it's definitely it's always a fun day. So whether you catch fish or not, sometimes the bite's tough. But you know whether you catch a lot of fish or you catch a few fish, it's still still always a fun day on the water, floating floating the river. So uh, yeah, eastalabamaflyfishers.com. We'd uh, we'd love to have you. There we go. Well, guys, definitely go be sure to check out Drew Morgan over at East Alabama Fly Fishing. Check him out. Check out all of his guides. And uh, Drew, always a pleasure having you on the show and look forward to speaking with you next time. Hey, Nick, I always appreciate it. I appreciate what you do and um, look forward to next time. Absolutely. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. If you own a pond or lake anywhere in the southeast, Southeastern Pond Management can evaluate the health of your pond and then work with you individually to put together the right plan to get what you want out of your body of water. Through electrofishing, liming, fertilizing, and stocking and weed control, Southeastern Pond Management is the one-stop shop to help you produce more healthy trophy fish than ever before. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call one 888 830-POND or email info at southeastpond.com. Alrighty guys, welcome back to another week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Super excited about this week's guest. We're going to be talking with John Harrison. John is a guide out of Granada Lake. Um, and he's got a pretty interesting specialty, something that I've seen pop up here and there on social media been wanting to get an interview, kind of talk about it, learn how to do it, maybe interested in making a trip myself. So, uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm John Harrison. Uh, I'm a guide over here on the uh, Big Four. Uh, actually, it's down to three now. Arca Butler's been kind of closed off due to the repair work on the levee, but uh, we fish Grenada, Enid, Sardis. And uh, if you hadn't never been waiting for crappie, uh, in the springtime, when the water starts warming up, you need to put it on your bucket list. It's something that's very special uh, to me and, and everybody that I've ever took just loves it. So we'll talk a lot about it today and uh, hope everybody will put it on their bucket list, come over and, or somewhere and try to try to catch a few crappie wading. So tell me, let me back up a little bit. You were talking about the big four or the big three. Uh, I've usually heard about wade fishing as something that you just do there. At, at, is it Granada or Grenada? It's Grenada. No, Grenada. no, we fish, we, we fish Grenada, Enid, and Sardis. And 
you know, we look forward every year to the water getting high. And we plan our trips around hoping high water will come in February. That's the best time for high water to get here is mid-February, end of February, because you want to start when that water starts reaching 58 degrees, 57, 58, starts warming up. Those old males, they, they headed to the bank. And one thing about these crappie here, it don't matter how high the water gets, they're going to the bank. And, you know, we had up until last year, we had four years in a row of super high water. And through the years, I guess, and I've been fishing Grenada Lake over 50 years. And over the last 50 years, we've, we've had a lot of erosion has filled these lakes up. And, you know, normally 215 would be good weighting. Uh, that's the lake level, and that's what's called summer pool, and I'm using Grenada for an example. It, it gets in no bushes to wade, and that's what we fish here. We call them bushes, iron woods, whatever. Uh, it, it gets in those iron woods around 217. So anything from right along in there is good wading. And, you know, when you mention wading, a lot of people think, well, you know, I can't, I can't do that. You know, it's just the mud's rough, and I can't wade and pull mud. Well, it's not like that here. I mean... The ground is firm. It's solid. I mean, the ground, the winter drawdown firms the ground up. Water don't stand on it all the time. So no matter where you go in those woods or in that brush, it, you know, you don't even have no mud on the bottom of your feet when you get back in the boat. I mean, it's just firm ground and you can just walk and walk and walk. And, and uh, you'll, you know, if you come a few times, you'll figure out where these fish are. They, they're the same pattern every year. These fish will relate to a cypress tree. It, you know, you go in the woods and you'll see one cypress tree will you know, sooner or later, you'll just, you know, you'll figure out, just head to that cypress tree and, and fish around the outside of it. Uh, those males will school up and, you know, they'll be, you know, you might catch 12 or 15 around one tree, just not so much around the tree, but in the perimeter around it, you have a lot of knees, those old cypress knees, you know, they come up six or eight inches, 10 inches for the how old that cypress tree is. And, and once you catch one, well, you know, you don't need to move. You just need to stop right there and just fish slow. You know, just stand still and fish in a perimeter around that tree, there, and you'll just keep catching them, you know, till you get them caught out, you know, and then you move on to the next tree. But they'll go as far as they can go back. It don't matter how far, you know, that to get to them, you either have to, a lot of guys will take a four-wheeler and know their way through the woods and, and come in, or you have to have a small John boat, you know, to get to them, like a 15. If you get anything over a 15 or 16, you, you really can't get through these woods and get to them you know, if the, if the water level gets up in the 220s or higher. Something that, that I'm curious about, the, the land there around Grenada Lake, so when it when it comes to access, or is it is it a thing where people, it sounds to me like you've got people coming both ways. you got people accessing that flooded timber from the lake and accessing it from the dry ground. Huh? Is, it, is it a case where a lot of that land around the lake is, is public access because it's core land or something? It is. It is. 90% of it. I'd say 95% is core-owned land and state land. You, you can take a four-wheeler and park it, and, you know, I think you have to wear a helmet, but, you know, to get to places. But, yes, there's there's and numerous, numerous people come. You hear four-wheelers coming through the bushes and the woods, and, you know, they, yes, it's plenty. And, and that, that, that goes true for all, all three of these lakes. Uh, you can park it and access it you know a lot of people park in the parking lot and get out with their waders on and and just wait or pull over on the side of the road you know close to the water in the woods and just go to waiting i mean it's it's not private ground you know might find one little spot here and there but but 99 percent of this is uh public access around these lakes yeah that's a that's a really awesome opportunity so it, it would be something where theoretically you could show up 
park on on public property, park on the core engineer land, and as long as you were down for yeah. a walk, you could just take off and and go do it. That's all. Oh, and I see people parking. Yeah, I know. A lot of times, crappie are uh, crappie can be kind of difficult to to bank fish for. You know, a lot of people sure. you know catch bluegill, catfish, bass, stuff like that. But crappie, you know, a lot of times you think crappie, you think open water, you think offshore in structure and stuff like that. So that's a really unique opportunity to just be able to walk out there. Does that area? So I'm I'm here on the Mobile Tensaw Delta, and and we get flooding like you're describing. But you know, we've we've got you know five rivers that run through the delta, and there's a lot of current. Is that the case mm-hmm. there? If you're in the flooded timber on Grenada, are you in a lot of current, or is it mostly no. slack water backed up? No, no, it's all slack water here. It's it's uh, we got two rivers, and I'll use Grenada. It has the Yellowbusha coming in from the east, and and coming in from the north is the Schoonum. In you know, it's not much current. I mean, you know, if you got a 10-inch rain or 8 or 10, it'll have some current in it, but it does not matter as far as wading. You know, i give you an example. A few years back, one it hit and rained five or six inches, and the lake was coming up really fast. And we pulled up to a spot one morning on close to a creek, and it was just grass in a little field. And, you know, water wasn't high enough to wade, so we left, went somewhere else, caught a few fish, and we came back by about 3 o'clock that afternoon. I seen a little water done spread out in that field. And I, I, I said, well, let's get out, you know, and it was just little old twigs and bushes and grass there. And I got out, and I seen a couple of those moving, and I thought, well, that's probably carp. But you have to realize when that water, your warmest water will be the closest to the bank, and the further you move out, the cooler it'll be. And it might only be 1 or 2 degrees, but that fish is going to follow that warmest water i mean even in knee deep you might be in waist deep and it, you won't catch one but you'll move to that knee deep and anyway we started catching them in that grass and you know six hours prior to that it was just dry dirt uh but it had, had came up about 14 inches and and we was catching them about six inches deep in that grass where it was dry that morning but that late that afternoon oh at two or three o'clock it had done water had done come up in that grass and those males they they just went with it just followed it right on out there that's that's pretty incredible. So you're talking about six inches of water. I mean, you're you're just about, you know, in the realm where you can sight fish them and look for the wake that they leave like a redfish out in the marsh, huh? Yeah, they, you'll see you if you'll notice, you see those fish. You know, a long time ago, back when I first started fishing, you know, learning about fishing in shallow water, my grandmother would take me and we would uh, fish cucklebur patches. It was a lot of cucklebur patches, and the water would get high in the spring. And it'd be just patches of cuckaburs, you know, in those little uh, CRP fields. And we just wade out to our knees, and you could see those cuckaburs just moving. You see one just, if you just watch, you could just see them all just moving out there. And we'd just pitch a cart in a minute out there and let it sit. And all, all of a sudden, one would come by those, you know, come through those coffee uh, cuckaburs and grab your cart and take off with it, you know. Uh, that's kind of where I learned how to wade fish, and that's, that's been a long time ago. Well, it, it definitely sounds like a like a unique fishery and a unique opportunity to have that much, you know, flooded timber there that that you can fish and and it be public access. Once, mm-hmm. like for going out there, like I know I know obviously if you're wade fishing for for crappie, you're gonna need a pair of waders. That's right. What other gear are you usually using to get out there and target these fish? Well, normally, you know, you're fishing pretty tight. I'll use a ten uh, foot, <laughs> excuse me, ten uh, foot BNM pole uh, i use a 10 foot ultralight because i fish a lot of hours so i like a light pole i use a 10 foot bnm ultralight uh and normally i'll use a little bit heavier line than i than i do if i'm not wading i'll use maybe a 10 pound test because i fish some pretty thick stuff you know a lot of times uh, you might find one of these old ironwoods we call them and they're broke over 
and they're real thick and you have to pull your jig up to the to the end end of your pole and ease it in there and about the time you get it down one hit it well you got to drag him out of there uh so you know your line gets nicks in it so we, we normally will, i'll use a you know a little heavier line than than normal we'll probably use a 10 10 pound gamma line and i just generally put me a few jigs in my pocket and i uh, use a lot of crappie magnet products and 16th ounce long as it's lime and chartreuse or chartreuse and lime that's just, I'm about to, it really don't matter about the colors and and a lot of people you know that when you're waiting the easiest way is get you one of those little cheap chain stringers you know that'll hold about eight fish that way you could you can uh snap it on your side and you can just clip that fish on there and drop him you don't have to untie your stringer and and tie it back to your waders uh you won't hurt get back to fishing so you just hook him on that little chain stringer and and, and I'll tell you something else what I want to mention is here on these lakes, your crappie has to be over 12 inches in length here to keep them. Now, if you're out there wading and you catch one and, and he looks like he's uh, 12 inches, but maybe he's not, you need to go and measure him or, or have you some, some type of little ruler or mark on your pole that he's over 12 before you put him on that stringer and not wait till you get back to the boat with him. Because if you put him on that stringer, and, you know, you think, well, I got 10 on here and five of them's questionable. You've took that fish in possession. And, and if, a, you know, a gaming fish officer, you know, you happen to run up on one in those bushes, you know, you got five illegal fish. So you uh, you have to, uh, have to you know, you need to make sure that fish is over. And, and also when you're dragging those males in that warm water, they gonna, you know, they gonna, they're not going to live long. And then you get back to the boat after you've drug him four or five hours, you know, he's not going to live. So you need to have you some kind of little method. I, I I got a mark on my pole. I'll just kind of take a, a mark and mark on my pole. And when I catch one, if, if, if I'm not, you know, if I know he's not over 12, I'll, I'll put him on that kind of measure him and, and uh, keep up with him that way. But as soon as you catch one, if he's not over 12, you need, you know, you need to release him. That sounds exciting to me to go fish a fishery with a 12 inch minimum. Cause I know here in Alabama, uh, we got a nine inch minimum and, here on the delta where i'm at you got a lot of saltwater intrusion and i've had a lot of days where i caught fish but i threw a lot of them back because they just didn't quite make that nine inch minimum so that sounds like y'all got some big crappie up there yeah well you know at the first the first ones you start catching when that water starts warming and like i said it, it might be the i have caught them as early as the first day of march might be the 15th of march it, it all depends on how, how the water is and the weather that's what it depends on but you know it's not things that only last a week or two weeks. Once you once those fish start, I mean, we'll catch them from the month of March, which is 31 days. We'll catch them all the way till about the 15th of April. And I have, on a few occasions through the years, caught them all the way into about the 8th, 10th of May. If you keep getting rains and the water just keeps coming up a foot or two foot, it cools that water a little bit. And, and then those fry. Those hatchlings, that fry, shad fry and crappie fry, it's still up in that shallow water. And those old males stay up in there. They won't leave. They, they'll stay right up in there. They get a little hard to catch. Their old noses get a little red, and uh, they, they get a little hard to catch. But they, they, uh, they'll they stay in there. You can you, you start catching a lot of little ones as time goes on, mid-April on. You, you might catch, you know, 75 fish and, and keep 12 or 15 of them as time goes on. Or you might hit a spot, you know, and – catch five or six and they're all over 12 in the next place you might catch 20 and keep two you know it's just you know that but they're a lot of fun to catch even i like to catch them if they're 11 or 11 and a half it, it, it really don't matter i just like to catch them a lot of fun with that jig pole 
It it definitely sounds like a lot of fun. So just just to clarify, with with your jig pole, you know, fishing that shallow is it something where you're just fishing like one of the old school like extendable poles without a reel, or, or you have something with a little casting reel? Are you casting, or are you just straight up jigging? Just straight line head sticking them, you know, just straight. And, and, and normally, you, you know, you won't have pull out but 18 inches of line, maybe two foot of line. That's that's as most, you know, because you you're going to fish from waist deep, you know, maybe early, early March. You might catch a few out at the top of your waders. But, you know, at, at the rule of thumb, mostly about your waist to your thighs. That, that That's kind of what I judge by, but I'm not very tall. <laughs> uh I, I try to stay just right around my, from my you know from my waist to my thigh right in there that's a until that water really now when it gets about 62 you start catching them with six inches of line out and 12 14 inches of water i mean when that water gets warm they you i don't see how you couldn't see that back sticking up especially if the water's got a little clarity to it if it's got a you know a little and these lakes stay stained up a lot you know but if it gets real clear you won't catch them that shallow if the water has just you know hadn't come up in a while it'll get real clear but uh that water will get warm fast and uh you know they'll kind of move back out to you know about thigh deep water it sounds like a bunch of fun it is a lot of fun like i said if anybody has never tried it you need to put it on your bucket list and come try it whether you use a guide or you know you decide you just want to come over and go fishing for a couple of days get your motel room and get to bring your waders your jig pole and come on over and go to fishing well speaking of, of good places to stay staying in a motel and stuff like that if I know usually if there's if there's core land, there's usually core campsites and my experience with those has been that they're usually pretty good. What's uh what's your recommendation as far as campsites, motels, places to stay, places to eat at if somebody wants to go make a three day weekend out of it? We it's a lot of places here to stay. Uh North Graceport, um I think the state owns the North Graceport one. It's that's a really good campground. Uh, the North Abutment is at the north end of the dam. That is a really nice one. Uh, the Corps owns it, and then you have one behind the the levee at Grenada. That's a really nice one to stay at. Sardis, Enid. Uh, you got John Kyle, Kozar. You got a lot of uh, campgrounds up there. Parks to stay at. They got uh, cabins. Uh, they don't have any on Grenada. They have a lot of Airbnb around Grenada. You can check, you know, if you didn't if you didn't want to camp, they have a lot of Airbnb, uh, a lot of them around here. I got a lot of friends that's got them. You can contact us, or but you can go on Airbnb, and there's a lot of places, you know, just within a mile of the water that you can stay at. And in town, there's a lot of nice places to eat. Uh, if you stay at Grenada, you got Jake and Ribs, you got uh, Carmelo's, you, you got a lot of nice places to eat uh, magnolia restaurant you got a lot of places in grenada uh batesville's a real large place and, and if you stay in batesville you got you're about 15 minutes from sardis 15 minutes from enid and you're about 30 minutes from grenada i mean if you stayed in batesville you your your access is to two lakes is 15 minutes either way uh north or south you can and there's you know a lot of places there to stay uh you got a lot of cabins a lot of campgrounds there's a lot of places to stay here you really don't I, when people call me to book guide trips i always tell them i don't know what lake we're you know when you book six months in advance i said i don't know what lake we'll be fishing just wait till the week before we'll contact you uh the week before and you can get a room or or something at at any of these places because you know we want you to stay as close as you can to where you don't have to get up so early to meet us but there's no problem whatsoever to find a place to stay here unless you know, there's a, an old Miss or Mississippi State ball game or something going on over here. You, you pretty much find something, 
some kind of big event going on that weekend, you pretty much find something with no problem. Well, it, it sounds like an awesome opportunity. Sounds like something that's definitely piqued my interest. If folks are listening in and, and they're thinking, well, I think I'd like to go do that thing, go wade fishing for crappie, uh, what's a good way to get a hold of you, John? You can reach me 24 hours a day on my cell phone. I do not have a website. I, and I said I've, I've been guiding over here 23 years. Uh, you can reach me on my cell phone. Uh, J, I run JH Guide Service. I'm the owner of it. And I have three or four guides that guide for me. And uh, you can reach me at 662-983-5999. Normally, we book up pretty fast. Uh, probably by the end of January, all our spring days are gone. Uh, we, we, we've been doing this a long time. So normally when... When our clients leave in March or April, they'll go ahead and book for the next year, you know, to to reassure them a spot before they they don't have to worry about it, you know, getting the days that they want. They just, you know, when they leave, uh, if they had, you know, th- last year they had 9, 10, 11, they'll just go ahead when they leave and book 9, 10, 11 for next year. And, you know, if the weather's real bad, you know, uh, unfishable weather, we call it, we'll, we'll postpone that trip. We'll call it off and, and, and tell people to pick another day. I know a lot of people call and say, what if it's storming the day we pick? Well, we don't want to get no storms either because safety is our main concern. You know, we don't want to be out on the water uh, running all over the lake in, uh, in, in bad weather. So we just postpone it, pick another day. But we certainly want everybody to enjoy their trip when they come over here and fish with us. Well, there we go, guys. If y'all are looking to go do some wade fishing for uh, crappie in Grenada Lake, definitely sounds like a, a unique opportunity to go catch crappie in knee-deep water. Y'all go uh, give John a call. And, John, I really appreciate you being on the show today, sir. Yes, thank you very much. And like I said, if you've never done, if you've never waited for crappie before, you need to put it on your bucket list and try it. You know, and there's other places, not just over here, but there's other places. You just think about it. When that water comes up in the springtime and it floods those woods, those crappie are going somewhere in those woods. You know, it's to be a different situation in, in every lake and every part of the country. But, uh, you know, they're they going to find warm water no matter what. Those, those males are going to, headed to the bank uh, to make those nests for those females. So uh, just remember, you know, uh, that first of March, according to your weather, when it when it starts warming up, you need to hit get those waders and get out there and get to fishing. There we go. It sounds like a great time. Well, John, I hope to uh, have you on the show again at some point, and uh, definitely uh, appreciate you being on, sir. Thank you so much for having me. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Killer Doc. I hadn't even realized how bad it was. I was cleaning fish on rotten wood, and after cleaning just a few fish, I was filthy. And I had a sudden burn. I tried wearing a hat, but it just couldn't keep me cool. And how was I supposed to clean fish without getting messy? Killer Dock brings the upgrade that not only will keep you cool and clean, it'll make being on your dock more enjoyable. Killer Dock combines durability, function, and design to uniquely upgrade your entire dock experience. Visit KillerDock.com to check out the greatest fish cleaning stations known to mankind. Also brought to you by... L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoon boats to bigger bay boat and offshore hybrids. L&M Marine LLC prides itself on its customer service and knows how important it is to be taken care of and to have someone you can trust. They are locally owned and regularly support the surrounding community. 
Allen M. Marine provides superior customer service and has an entire team that consists of professional sales members, finance experts, service technicians, and a knowledgeable parts and accessories staff to fully support you. Go visit their friendly, reliable, and experienced staff today. Allen M. Marine is located six miles north of I-10 at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama. You can also reach them by phone at 251-937-1380. All righty, folks. Welcome back to the show. Another episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Uh, this time we got Norm Latona here with us today speaking uh, with Southeastern Pond Management. We're going to talk a little bit about pond fish feeders. Um, I have had the pleasure as a little boy fishing around some of them pond fish feeders, throwing out that pelletized bluegill food. And I can tell you that that's a, uh, that's a pleasure that I wish I got to experience more often now that I'm older. It's, uh, sadly, you kind of outgrow it. It's kind of like ice cream. Everybody thinks you should have outgrown it, but uh, I, I beg to differ. I wish I could still get a little more of both of them. Ain't that right, Norm? Oh, absolutely. I, there's there's few pleasures in life greater than showing up to a pond sitting next to a feeder with a sleeve of crickets and watching the bobber go under i i i, I do it more and more the older i get <laughs> for for sure that that was uh that that is one of those things that it it seems like you know you see the toys that say uh you know for ages 8 to 80 or something like that and it seems like pond fishing for bluegill is something for the folks outside that bracket like like the, the younger you are <laughs> and the older you are the more interested you are to it. And then unfortunately, a lot of people in the middle part of their lives, they kind of lose interest and they get tricked into thinking that there's other, you know, faster cars and uh, <laughs> out there right. to go chase. So then, they, right. then, they, then it takes them some years until they realize, you know what, I had the best thing right there all along <laughs> and I could have been doing it this whole time. So that's right. Yeah. Talk, talk to me a little bit. I've, I've seen a lot of, of, of pond feeders. And and I've seen a lot of them, sadly, that that were installed and didn't do anything but collect wasp nests in the summertime. So yeah, sure. I, that that seems to always be a thing. How do you avoid that? Basically, if if somebody's going to buy a fish feeder, if they're looking to put one out there, whether they're looking just to to have some easy fishing for when the grandkids come over, whether they're looking to feed the bluegill so that they can feed their bass, what do you look for? What do you advise customers to look for when yeah. they're buying? a fish feeder yeah well for for us nick it's a it's a simple answer and that is purchase your feeder from southeastern pond management and the reason i say that is not because we have products that will never break but more because we stand behind the stuff that we sell and so when it comes to feeders automated feeders whether you're talking about wildlife feeders or bird feeders or fish feeders you really get what you pay for. And we have been through quite a few manufacturers over the years and the products that we use because we really stand behind them. I mean, if I have a customer that calls me six months after I install his feeder and say, this feeder's not working anymore, I don't give them a 1-800 number or a, a shipping address and tell them to ship it back to the manufacturer. I go out there and fix it. And if need be, replace it. And unfortunately, you know, when you're dealing with equipment like that, it's out the elements that you're just going to have problems occasionally. So whether you buy it in all seriousness from Southeastern Pond Management or somewhere else, I would keep, I would do it with the eye on 
Are you going to stand behind the product? Are you going to come out there and troubleshoot it, fix it, replace this part, that part, whatever, you know, when I have a problem with it. Now, all that said, the feeders we sell, primarily Texas Hunter products, we have many, many, many of them. The vast majority of what we install lasts for many years with very few problems. You know, occasionally there are problems. And as I said, we go out and address them. If need be, we replace it, you know, but, uh, but the products we use are outstanding and they're not the cheapest. I mean, there, there are some products that you can purchase, uh, automated products, again, whether it's a bird feeder or wildlife feeder or fish feeder that are, that are lower cost. But in my experience, you, you pay for it one way or another. So much so, Nick, that we just don't install that kind of stuff. We don't sell feeders in a box. I rarely, maybe occasionally, we'll have a customer that's bought a bunch of feeders from us. Says, look, I, I just need you to ship me one. But as far as that goes, that that's just not what we're in the business of doing. What we're in the business of doing is coming out, assembling the thing, installing it, putting the battery in it, placing it on the pond bank, filling it up with fish food, programming it, uh, setting it to go off this many times a day at these times and make sure it's working right. And again, when the thing quits working or, or starts to give you trouble, the remedy is pick up the phone and call me and we'll go out there and deal with it. About the only thing our customers are responsible for is opening the lid up, dumping a bag of fish food in it every once in a while and shutting the lid back. You know, so that's that's the best advice I can give you is look for a, a product that you've got to whoever supplies that's going to stand behind it and and help you take care of it. How, tell me a little bit. I know the, the Texas Hunter feeders, those are like the big stand up, like automatic style feeders. What can you tell me about the differences between something like that and then the, the floating feeders? I think those are more popular with like your commercial operations. Than yeah. Again, the, the the more complicated you make it, the, you know, floating feeders are fine. The advantage is to a floating feeder is you can scatter food 360 degrees, you know, and it's all going to go in the water, whereas a, a bank-mounted feeder typically feeds in one direction. We call them directional feeders, you know. Um, the problem with the with the floating stuff is it's more stuff to maintain. You know, you've got to have it floating on something, so you got to maintain that that apparatus. It's more difficult to service it. Obviously, you got to get in a boat or to fill it, even. So we tend to stay away from them uh, for the most part. We do have some customers that have them or have designed their own little floating plat platforms, but generally. The Texas Hunter product, they have a directional feeder and several different models of it. And really the different models are just correspond to different hopper sizes. So we've got one that holds about a hundred pounds of feed. We've got one that holds about 300 pounds of feed and on up. But uh, they do a great job of, of shooting the food out in one direction. Typically we, we, we use a, a floating pellet uh, but it'll handle sinking feed as well if folks want to use sinking feed. So you can mount it on a pier. You can mount it right on the bank. They've got adjustable legs so you can change sort of the angle, the launch angle, 
you get that thing anchored down and it's there and, and, you know, it'll shoot it out into the water from one direction, uh, no trouble. And so that's typically what we, what we do. Norm, is there any type difficulties that people run into buying a feeder? Is it, is it possible to buy too much or too little feeder for your pond? Yeah. You know, that's a good question, Nick. I, folks tend to, to, to overthink or, or, or I should say they bigger is not always better. Let me put it that way. We tell folks, look, the only difference between a 300 pound hopper and a, and a hundred pound hopper is how often you have to fill it. Uh, so if it's not a, a huge burden for you to fill your feeder with some frequency, then buy the smaller one. When you buy a large hopper, uh, and there's some applications where where it, it 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 can be useful, but you just run the risk of that much greater risk of you know the lid getting left off and water getting down in it, and now all of a sudden you got 300 pounds of fish food to deal rotten fish food to deal with instead of 100 pounds, or uh, you know some moisture getting in there or something clogging the 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 the, the hopper up. So you know these feeders are not designed or not meant. The, these recreational directional feeders, listen, we, you know, five pounds per acre per day is a lot of fish food. I mean, five pounds of fish food is a lot of fish food. So if you got a five acre lake and you've got a, and you're feeding five pounds a day, you know, about every 10 days to two weeks, you got to refill a hundred pound feeder. I mean, it just, it just, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it, it's it's not that much trouble to keep them full. I mean, you literally open the lid and dump food in them. So the by far the most popular uh, model that we sell is that 100-pound capacity hopper. You know, it's fairly low profile. It doesn't stick out like a sore thumb, and it's got plenty of food in it to to, to run for, for, for at least a couple weeks at a time. Talk to me a little bit more, and, and that's interesting because I, I would have been one of those people who overbought thinking, well, I'll buy a big one and not have to, to fill it up as much, even though mm-hmm. you're, you're right. It makes sense. As soon as you say that, it's like, well, if you get 300 pounds of fish food that is going to get damp here in the hot summer weather or, or potentially, you know, end up with, with insects or mice or, or that, whatever, that's right. or just, just get stale because it's been sitting there for so long. Yeah. You know, oh. corn, corn, which folks feed, you know, a lot of corn, obviously for, for wildlife and, you know, it's a little tougher. I mean, it, you, you know, you put 300 pounds of corn in a feeder and, it, you know, even if a little moisture gets in there, it, it's, it's it, it, you know, it can usually tolerate that. Fish food is is porous. It's soft. It's it's uh, it's oily. Uh, you know, it, it wants to tend to clump uh, even with just a little bit of moisture. So it's better to keep fresh product in the hopper. As, as best you can there are there are some cases where you know folks just aren't down on their properties and they need to have a couple of months at a time of feed in in the hopper and, and in those cases we'll you know we will utilize a larger hopper size but for the most part in our experience it's better to use a smaller hopper and keep that f- fish food fresh as, as much as you can kind of kind of Going off of that line of thought as, as far as feeding less and keeping it fresh. And then, then you mentioned that, you know, a pound of fish food per acre was, was a lot of fish food. How much do you think your average pond owner 
should be feeding? Like if they go to program that thing, how, how often do you guys recommend that it throws food? Does it yeah. vary based on whether you're just, you know, feeding them for the grandkids versus feeding the bluegill to feed the bass? You know, do you feed, is it better to feed multiple times a day in small increments or do you just feed once a day, once every other day? What's that look like? Yeah. So a few things on that, I guess your one question, there, there is some variability in, in depending on your objective. Uh, if you're feeding bluegill, as you said, for the grandkids, just as an attractant and to attract bluegill to an area to make them easier to catch and uh, then very small amounts of feed is all you all you need. I mean, those fish become habitualized, and you've seen it around these feeders. You know, the feeder goes off, the feed hits the water, and it's like a bunch of piranhas in there. I mean, they eat it up in just a few seconds. And that's that's adequate if all you're trying to do is concentrate fish for catching. Obviously, if you're trying to really make an impact terms of a nutritional impact uh, growth rate and, and abundance you have to up that feed rate some so we kind of work with the pond owner to design a program based on what their needs and what their objectives are and what their budget is and and tailor it that way as far as the frequency of feeding again bluegill uh, in particular get really habitualize on that on those feeders and so all sorts of research has shown that fish will eat more uh if you feed them small amounts over uh, a long longer period of time instead of all at once so we tend to these feeders the they're you can program up to 12 times a day and we don't ever do that but breaking the feeding up into two or even three times a day certainly morning and evening is a great idea and so we almost always do that uh, sometimes we'll even do it three times a day have kind of a midday feeding problem with midday feeding in the summertime it just gets it on hot unless you have a, a feeder that happens to be in a shady spot <clears throat> those fish don't really don't really feed as well in the middle part of the day but but definitely early in the morning, late in the evening, we'll break it up into into those two different feeding times. Talk talk to me. Last time we talked, we kind of talked about how a big expense putting a destratification system or a pond fountain was running power out to it. Uh, I imagine with a with a fish feeder, that's probably a little bit easier to do. What's that usually look like? Getting power to one, getting one set up properly. Yeah, it's 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 plug and play. There's no there's no permanent power needed for these things. They're twelve volt systems. The majority of them, um, they run off of a small twelve volt rechargeable battery, kind of like a small motorcycle or lawnmower battery. They have. Almost all the feeders, we certainly recommend it this way. We sell with a, a solar recharging panel that mounts onto the side of it. And uh, with any uh, with any maintenance at all, you know, keeping that solar panel kind of cleaned off and free of dust and, and, and mildew, I mean, you can get two or three years out of a battery, uh, you know, just with, with average sunlight hitting it so so they're really they're really pretty pretty maintenance free you know occasionally we have trouble with 
with a with a battery and it's very simple to replace them. They've got little doors in the side of them and you can uh swap a battery out in you know 30 seconds. Uh, it's not a not a big pro- not a big deal at all. That that definitely that sounds a lot easier than what we were talking about last time as far as running running power underneath your pond and making sure that all that's set up easier. Uh yeah, no, it's night and day, night and day different. Absolutely. I, yeah. another another thing I'd bring up about feeders is um and we use a lot. We we use we we put out lots and lots of feeders. I would say the majority of our customers uh have at least a fish feeder on their pond because it's such a productive management input. I mean Outside of liming and fertilizing, which are kind of the cornerstone inputs for pond management, you know, supplemental feeding is 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 right there uh, in terms of just the impact you can have on your pond. And so we do it. We do quite a bit of it. And there's actually some different options when it comes to the type of fish food that you use. And um, what you and I grew up on, Nick, was just floating catfish pellets, 32, 34, maybe 36% protein, uh, nothing in the world wrong with it. Uh, Blue will eat it like crazy, and it's great, and, and, and the fish will certainly grow on it. But as this, as this supplemental feeding thing has grown over the years, we've begun to use the some of the higher protein uh, rations, stuff that's 48, 50% protein, real high fish meal content. And you talk about growing now. I mean, you can almost watch the fish grow. Now it's 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 significantly more cost <clears throat> to to utilize that that stuff. Purina has, in my estimation, the best options when it comes to the high protein stuff. It's a commercial grade feed. It's called Aqua Max and they make it in several different sizes, but it's real high in protein and the bluegill will grow right before your eyes. And we also use it when we stock trout in the fall and in winter time, which is a subject for another show maybe, but uh, the rainbow trout <clears throat> that we stock prefer a, a higher protein ration. And again, they will grow on it. Of course, they'll eat all winter long. And so we tend to use that Aquamax, uh, those Aquamax products when we have rainbow trout present. That's definitely 48% protein is is pretty heavy duty. I know I've, uh, when you said that, I flashed back. I had some buddies in college who uh, were into the bodybuilding and they were always looking up their protein content. And I, yeah, that's right. I have a feeling that if they'd have seen a 50 pound bag of fish food that said it was 48% protein, there's some of them <laughs> who would have sat there and poured it in a bowl with some milk and tried to eat it for breakfast. Probably <laughs> so. Probably I so. I, I have seen, I have seen some remarkable bluegill over the years, uh, particularly in these ponds that do that. And we've got some, we've got some lakes that are really diligent about, you know, feeding nearby year round that high protein stuff. And listen, it is not unusual for us to to collect when we go out and do our sampling to see 32, 36 ounce bluegill. I mean, I'm talking about two pound plus bluegill legit now. And I, folks will tell me all the time, I, we, we call a, call a stringer full of pound and a half bluegill. And I usually go, yeah, right. Those were eight or 10 ounces. But when you see a, 30 ounce bluegill, 
a pound and a half bluegill even, you'll know you saw it. It looks like a dinner plate and you can't hardly hold it because it's so thick. And uh, they'll and they they'll get like that eating that that high protein food. It takes a while. I mean, they won't do it in one season, but you 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 feed like that for multiple seasons, you'll produce some pretty remarkable bluegill. Well, Norm, I've I've learned a lot today, as always. If if there's some folks who are interested in in what you're putting down there, if they'd like to grow some of them uh, 32, 36 ounce bluegill. Uh, put a pond on there or put a excuse me put a fish feeder on their pond what's a good way to get in touch with you yeah you can uh they're welcome to call my cell phone directly anytime uh or text me at that at this number 205-288-1371 or they can look us up on the web at sepond.com there we go, folks. If y'all are looking to add a supplemental feeding program to your pond this year, y'all definitely go check out Southeastern Pond. Check out Mr. Norm. They sponsor the show. They've been in business since 1989. As you can tell, they know what they're doing. And Norm, as always, happy to have you on the show today, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it, buddy. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Fish Bites. Whether you're hitting the sand with set rigs, using traditional scent strips for pompano, or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Family-owned and operated in St. Augustine, Florida, they pride themselves on making reliably consistent fishing products for anglers of all ages all around the world. Fish Bites baits and lures are made with pride in the Sunshine State here in USA. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. If you'd like for us to email you the podcast, just text FISHING to 314-665-1767. Again, just text the word FISHING to 314-665-1767. Subscribe to our email list, and we'll send you the new show each week. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by the East Tennessee Fishing Show and Expo's back this year, January 25th through the 28th at the Knoxville Expo Center on Clinton Highway. The East Tennessee Fishing Show is the largest fishing show in the South, and this year will be featuring more dealers, more vendors, and more exhibits than ever before, all under one roof. Come check out custom tackle, lures, rods, reels, electronics, and guides January 25th through the 28th. Tickets are only $12 for adults and $8 for kids six and above. Kids five and younger can attend for free. Tickets are available online or at the door, and the parking is also free. Learn more at EastTennesseeFishingShow.com. Also brought to you by BucksIsland.com. Bucks Island has been in business since 1948 for all of your new and used boat needs, as well as motor sales and service, and now they have a pro-level tackle store. Boat and motor trade-ins are welcome. Visit them online at BucksIsland.com or give them a call at 256 442 2588. Also by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator, bringing you the highest quality online satellite fishing charts since 2004. Your source for sea temps, allometry, currents, and watercolor at hiltonsoffshore.com. And brought to you by Mallard Bay. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Plan trips, buy gear, go experience. Mallardbay.com. Also by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks manufacture a variety of metal roofing systems to meet your needs. Whether you're putting a new roof on your home or sheeting a commercial building, they have you covered. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters.